What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Libations and Liberation, the podcast. I am your host, Arnetta Viella Smith, and I am excited to honestly be back on the microphone. Um, it's been a crazy month and a half. I've been finishing up the semester. But more recently, I've been sick, recovering from a cold that I caught from my daughter and a sinus infection that that cold turned into. So I'm really excited to be back uh, feeling not quite 100%, but definitely 95%, still trying to recover some of the issues that, you know, that infection caused with my asthma. But I am feeling way better than I have in a few weeks. But enough about me. I'm excited about today's show. This um, interview was pre-recorded back in April. (laughs) Yeah, it's I'm on brand, (laughs) right? This is late as hell. But um, I think it's a very important conversation. So I'm so excited to share with you an interview I had with Dr. Andrew Jolivet, who is an author, an educator, a social justice activist, and we're talking about blackness and anti-blackness and Indianism and radical love and all of the things. Um, Definitely a great conversation. It, It definitely shifted my mindset a lot around the way I view other people of color, right, outside of blackness. And I'm just really excited for it, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, But of course, before we get into that, we have to do our libations. Okay, so I want to pour some libations out for Black TikTok, who, if you haven't heard, went on strike. That's right. They went on strike. Why? Because they recognized all of the cultural appropriation that happens on TikTok. So what's going to happen when there's no black creators? What is going to be created? Um, As you can see, in this moment, nothing. Stupidity is created. I'm not saying that we got the flavor, we bring the stuff, but... If uh, us going on strike produces this, then it's saying something. Um, So I just want to shout out all the black TikTokers who went on strike. Thank you uh, for your entertainment, for your talent, for your creativity, for making these little short, funny videos. Um, So, yeah, Ashe, I'm in. And so it is. All right, welcome to Community Speaks. I am so excited for our next guest. This is one of my mentors, my professors from SS State. Um, Dr. Andrew Jolivet is on the line. He is an expert in everything indigenous. I'm so excited. So let me give him a brief introduction. My excitement is getting crazy up in here. Um, So Dr. Andrew Jolivet is the professor and chair of ethnic studies department at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the founding director of Native American and Indigenous Studies at UC San Diego and the author or editor and editor of nine books, y'all. That's right, nine books in print. And he has this dope anthology that's coming called Louisiana Creole Peoplehood, Afro-Indigeneity and Community. Please welcome Dr. Jolivet. Andrew, say what's up. What's up, everybody? Uh, my name is Andrew, uh, and I am talking to you all today from Kumeyaay Territory in San Diego. Uh, and I'm really excited to be here to talk about these issues. They're super important they're gaining some visibility but i do think there are still a lot of you know things people aren't aware of a lot of unfortunate things that um, have been happening um in some of these conversations so thank you for having me on yeah Shay, thank you for coming okay so let's go ahead and get into it uh before we get into the conversation around um, blackness and indigeneity. Tell us a little bit more about you for folks who don't know um, that much about uh, Andrew. Tell us about your roots, your foundation, um, how you got into, I mean, obviously this is a part of your identity, but how did you get into academia, that type of thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was born and raised in San Francisco, Yalamu Ohlone territory. Um, and I, um, my 
you know, both my parents have roots in the South. Uh, my father in Louisiana, my mother in Alabama. Uh, I think just as, as you point out, I mean, part of this is, you know, it's part of my heritage. My father's Louisiana Creole, similar to a lot of tribes, I think, in the Southeast and in the Northeast, where you have earliest contact between Europeans and Native people and uh, um, Africans you have a lot of racial mixing. And so you have tribes that are like Creole people, right? That they have that sort of three group mixture, very much like Latinos, right? For that matter. Um, and so for me, I've always, since I was, you know, growing up or as a child knew that all these things were part of my identity, but I think certain things got centered more than others. Um, so for me, it was really important to, um, to really focus, particularly as a Creole person, which I think culturally I identify with most, is that most of the things that were being written were about Creoles as this sort of black-white dichotomy. And I was like, well, what happened to the Native part of our ancestry? Why is this always left out? Um, it's definitely not about some romanticization, which I think sometimes people think, oh, this is about, you know, this longing for some Native indigenous ancestry. Um Really, it's not because these aren't glamorous. That history is is um, actually a painful one, right? Um, but it's not just about history. It's about a living, breathing people too, um, and the and the work that we continue to do, um, and the challenges that we try to face, even as multiracial people. So for me, my focus, I think, I t decided to kind of focus in Native studies because of the three different groups that uh, for my background it seemed that this was where there was the, a lot of times the least amount of conversation, um, representation, people talking about these other experiences too, that to be Indian is also and often to be mixed, to be black, um, that to be indigenous is to be of African descent as well as first nations here in the U S. And so, um, I stumbled into academia though. I, um, uh, wanted to go to law school. I have always kind of considered myself like an activist, I think, and said, Oh, maybe law school is going to be the best way to do this. And I was like, no, it's not. So anyway, I ended up teaching in a summer program and taught a women's studies and a native American studies class to 10 year olds, fifth graders. And I loved it. And so then I decided to apply to grad school like last minute and went to San Francisco State and got a master's in the same program you did in ethnic studies. Just so shout out to the to the shout the, out to the the um, And so, you know, I and then from there, I went on to UC Santa Cruz and did a master's and a PhD in sociology. But my research was has always really no matter whether I was looking at like public health or education has really kind of looked at these, or queerness, looked at these convergences of, of, of blackness and indigeneity um, and, and what I would call kind of a critical mixed race lens to highlight the work that has always been going on and that continues to go on. Um, and what I like to talk about is thrivance, not just this idea that we're surviving or that we are resilient, but that we want to not just be in the same place. We want to be moving some somewhere, right? And so I kind of push back against this idea of, you know, and not that survivance is only saying that, but it does still have at its root this notion of what are the pieces that still exist, right? Like, well, let's not talk about it in that way. Let's let let's let's center that joy a little bit more um, that exists. So yeah, so so that's me. And um yeah, I've been at this, I don't know, 20, 20 plus years. I say, I say. So I kind of want to backtrack just a little bit. Um, towards the beginning of you explaining your roots, you talked about Creole, this Creole identity, and how when there was um, discussion literature, et cetera, um, that discussed this identity, it was legit a uh, black-white dichotomy, like a mixture of black and white. Um, this is this is my ignorance. <laughs> Do you think that that was a part of a colonial project to erase indigenous indigenous people? Um, because I do know that at least um, uh, in undergrad, uh, uh, there was always a conversation about you know we're not gone, we're still here, right? And I'm wondering if the removal of of, an, of the indigenous aspect of Creole identity was a part of that uh, longer colonial project 
um, that you you often find in in South America and Mexico, that colonial project of mixing out the indigeneity. Do you think there's some connection here or was it just they're not enough? Um, and this, again, my ignorance, there's not enough um, academics or enough people researching. I know today that's different, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. 100. No, 100%. You are you hit the nail on the head. No, that's absolutely. I mean, it's what we talk about as a paper genocide or a bloodless genocide. This idea that we would write out Indian or Native people from existence by rewriting them as black. And that's not to say, because there is a lot of, hot, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say Hotep or what is a very specific kind of focus. I I forget now what the folks are calling themselves. I, I'm blanking on the terms. I'm like, okay. But there are a lot of folks who are of African descent who are out there kind of saying, well, they're the original. There are, they're the real Indians or indigenous people of this land. I think that's a problem and we need to be careful about um, not conflating those and also how that actually lends itself to anti-Blackness, even though these folks are kind of asserting this sort of Black pride in some way through this Indigenous lens is actually erasing African and Black peoples. Oh, wait, let's stop there. Because what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Because I, I, I like that. That's obviously a part of this conversation. But these these black folks, these are black folks who are saying that these they're the original peoples of this land, right? Um, and and you said that it lends that self to anti blackness. And so for me, as a person who's really just starting to learn about these ideas, um, tell us more how a black person <laughs> perpetuates the anti blackness by saying, you know, by by claiming that. Sure. It's it's anti-black and it's anti-Indian. I mean, part of it is you are basically like, let me give you, try to give a brief example of this. So there was a group, it was on Instagram, I remember distinctly, they called themselves, oh, this is what you could say, some of these groups call themselves origines, right? R-I-G-N-E, because that's what they were calling themselves. And they were claiming all these specific tribal identities. So they had taken down an image from one of the Ohlone websites and they had made T-shirts and they were selling them and California Indians were calling them out. They didn't even live in California. They didn't even know how to pronounce Ohlone. They were saying alone. Um, then they were saying this person, she was saying she was a member of like all these tribes were like, these are five, six, seven different states. How can you possibly be a part of all these tribes? Then it was funny because my roommate at the time is Oneida and French. And I was like, girl, she got your tribe on there too. She Oneida. I was like, they never cancel my tribe. Attack upon you, Shaq. That's such a, you know, no one knows anything about them. We're supposedly extinct, right? And then lo and behold, she had it on there too. I was like, what is really going on here? But what I mean to say is that there's nothing wrong with embracing and understanding African indigeneity or a particular Black American kind of indigeneity but i think by replacing that by saying well actually who we really are we're not black people because many of them are saying they're not black oh and that's where the anti-blackness they're really they're the real true first americans and it's like well you're erasing connections you are disregarding the transatlantic everything that that ancestor memory that that history that that's that's anti-black as hell, I, yeah. right? To negate and erase that. And then culturally appropriative to just take on and put on a couple of feathers and be like, oh, I'm an Indian. So we have these extremes, right? But to go back kind of to your question, right? Because this is where they're connected, why this is so complicated, is that then you have folks who were mixed, like my tribe. You had anthropologists go down. You had census takers who would go in. Um, and they're like, oh, well, they're mixed with black. They're not Indians anymore. So we're going to put them down either as, you know, colored or maybe they put them down as white. Um, and that was intentional, right? So that they would erase those identities. And you think about Latin America, which you made the comparison. Again, you're talking about millions of people that we know are indigenous, but don't get counted as indigenous because now they're this mixed category of you know, and they don't. Even, we don't even talk about it because we don't even talk about the mixed category. We just say, "Oh, they're mestizo." We don't say what they're mixed with, right? And that's how blackness gets erased there often. That's how indigenous identity gets erased there. So for me, I've seen that happen time and time again. 
And I think there's a lot of centering of whiteness in terms of uh, Native folks here in the States. So you'll see white passing people. It's not to say they don't face their own challenges, you know, but I also think that there is a reason that we see that's tied to history where no one's challenging that as much as they do when they see someone who looks, you know, typically black walk in a room. They're like, well, you're not Indian. But then these white people walk in, phenotypically white people just walk in and it's like, there's no question about that. Um, so I think there's a lot of things going on in, in terms of anti-blackness within Indian country, but also, you know, sort of anti-Indian things that are going on in black spaces too. And so, but I think that we need to focus on is where the convergences, the solidarities, or what I like to say, the kinship as opposed to the solidarity, but that it really is about kinship um, and that we're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes people talk about, oh, you can't have black liberation without indigenous self-determination. I keep saying, no, that's not, that's too, like, you're over here, we're over here, and we're like allies. No, we're a family, we're in kinship, and that we also, black people also need self-determination, and native people also need liberation, but also, hey, guess what? There are also people who are both. So I talking about it as if there's only one or the other, or then you have people perpetuating like the Skip Gates, who does the thing on African ancestry and DNA, that's really problematic. We don't talk about how admixture affects that. So then people are like, well, all you black folks talking about y'all Native American, but your DNA don't show really any. You really just mulattoes or you're black and white. Well, that's because it's the least dominant of those genes and it's not going to show up, right? Yeah. I would like to say, uh, just for listeners who don't know who Skip Gate is... <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes, we we know who I know who you're talking about, but maybe say his. It's oh, not Skip. Yeah, his real name is Henry Louis Gates. Yes, but, uh, yes. I just wanted to say. Skip, he goes by Skip Gates. Uh, That's how uh, you know they homies. Look. But no, you know my own. <laughs> yes, people I know who knew him call him by his Skip. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I want to yeah. just kind of stop it. Um, talk about the the couple of things, man. So many. Um, insights within that because as a person who identifies as as black racially black um i don't really like the term african-american it makes me feel othered for you know what i mean so so i do identify as black but um i'm very interested in this concept of solidarity and and I think um, the reason is, and it has a lot to do be- of uh, of centering anti blackness for me, um, because I've experienced so much of it. Specifically, since I've been living in Southern California and the Bay, nobody, I didn't have that experience. But down here, it's it's um, it's very prevalent, right? And so it's interesting because you know. When we talk about solidarity, for me at least, there has to be a level of respect or something. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, it will create this uh, relationship of I'm trying to save you. You're the victim versus we both have our own strengths. We have our own tools. Let's work together. Um, and I'm saying that because how... For me, I'm, I'm thinking, how can we even move forward? Because I'm digging everything you're saying. I'm digging uh, what you said about this concept of survival and resiliency. I'm digging that. I think we need to get beyond that. If we're always in a constant state of survival, we don't grow. We don't move, right? I'm digging um, the concept of solidarity always down. But when you have been um, hurt, when you have been... Um, when, when a group has been violent, that's violence, right? Anti-Blackness is violence. Um, in your opinion, right, how, how can you bridge to create a solidarity? Because I think that is one of our issues as people of color, regardless of our identities, is that, and, and I mean, we saw it last week with the, with the shooting um, of, of the women of Asian, of Asian descent, right? Um, and all of this is rooted in white white supremacy. And as ethnic studies scholars, we know our histories. We know the social histories of everyone else. But also, how do you bridge 
this concept of solidarity when there is so much pervasive anti-Blackness within all of the communities. Um, and I'm not saying that as as someone who's naive, as if I know that anti-Blackness is not prevalent within the Black community itself. So, but but I mean, as an activist, as someone who is trying to shift um, not only the narrative, but the experiences, the real live experiences of people of color, how do we bridge those 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 solidarity, those activist efforts to get liberation for everyone? Um, and I think it, for me, it's very difficult to see when we're talking about anti-Blackness, because as someone who suffers from t- PTSD, right? It's a trigger whenever you see that person walks in the room. So anytime I see a white person, a pale skinned person, regardless of what their ancestry is, I'm already like, mm, I'm good. <laughs> you know what I mean? So as a as an activist who this is your work, like when you look at your books, I remember reading Blood, um, Indian Blood, and and before you got it published, it was dope as fuck. But <laughs> but just thinking about how for that book for me really got my mindset thinking, yeah, I want to work with these queer indigenous people so they can get what they need. But then walk in there, anti-blackness, anti-blackness. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, you deal with it on yourself, you uh, by yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, no, I think part of it is we have to back up and realize, like, actually, I don't, I actually think language is really important. And I think for some people, they're like, no. So actually, I'm not, just like I said, I don't think this is about allyship. You, you know, Bishop Yvette Flunder from City of Refuge in the Bay Area. She said at an event I was at some years back, she was like, an ally is very transactional. Mm-hmm. I mean, we formed an alliance. You do something for me, so I do something for you. That's not what we need. She said it was more like family or we needed to, you know, have these kind of relationships with each other. So We call me, it co-conspirators. We need co-conspirators. We need action. And I actually don't like co-conspirator either because it assumes, the reason I don't, right, or even accomplices because, which some people love, right? Because it says we're not complicit in the system, but then it also says, because we're using their language still, because it's in English, if you're a conspirator, you're conspiring to do something that's illegal or again, actually, no, we're not. We're doing something mm. that is just, right? Okay. Yes, um, yes. So I think sometimes, you know, I don't want to be your accomplice because that says I'm doing something illegal. No, I want to be, you know, your relative that's working together collectively in ceremony, not in solidarity, because solidarity is also temporary, right? Mm. That it is based in time, you know, rather than a sort of spatial, you know, how are we connected? How are our shared struggles understood? So when we talk about anti-Asian and anti-Black and anti-Indian or anti-Arab, Muslim, Latinx, queer violences, um, violences against women of color's body, right? Trans women, um, trans folks, period, right? All of these things is to say, how do we understand and change the way that we operate? Not if we say, let me be in solidarity or be an ally, because then that just means, oh, I just want to show up and hold some signs or go to the rally. Like for me, that's not deep, meaningful change, right? Mm. It's having conversations with family, it's organizing. Um, And so for me, that level of work, that level of deep commitment is what I would talk about as ceremonial or kinship based. Mm. Ceremony, it just means that it's a type of relational connection and commitment to the liberation of all people. Ashe, I love that. And now I'm going to co-opt it if it's okay with you. (laughs) You're not co-opting, you're sharing, you're moving it forward. (laughs) Yes, I love it. And I think, you know, kinship uh, holds uh, a history within the Black community, right? Uh, When we talk about, I always talk to my, you know, a lot of people don't understand it as kinship. But I'm like, you know, when you have your play cousins and your your play mamas on the playground, the people who protect you and have your back. Um, so that totally makes sense. And and so thank you for that insight and that and that wisdom. Um, so let's kind of go back towards the anti-blackness and what's been happening with you. 
Sure. So, and one of the reasons I also reached out is because, you know, I follow you on social media. I know you as a person. Um, and I know, um, you know, your work. And so I was, and I think you remember this. I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right. Uh, And and you said, and I remember the post, you're like, this is what anti-blackness looks like. Um, And so I did, you know, I did the little mapping. Well, where did this come from? So I ended up on Facebook and I saw some comments and, um, and I don't remember seeing them say your name specifically, but I noticed that you were the darkest person on the panel. And uh, the comment was, if you're going to bring, and, and forgive me, this is not exact quote, if you're going to bring somebody, make sure they're real or something like that, like they're real mm-hmm. Indians yeah. or something yeah. like that. And yeah. I was like, what? What's going on? <laughs> like, how, how can you tell somebody is a real Indian first and foremost? Well, and particularly, these were all white passing people, right, who are maybe enrolled members of a tribe. But let's get into it, right? That the reality is if we're talking about how racism functions, are in your daily life, are you actually experiencing anything that do people read you as a native person or as a person of color? No, you are as a white person and your white privilege is probably why you have an enrollment card. But let's let's dig deep here, right? People can get mad all they want, but sovereignty, right? Even sovereignty, the way in which our federal recognition, I let me distinguish the federal recognition process in the United States is actually about controlling Native people. It's not about the self-determination of Native people. Um, it's limited in what it can do. How can you tell me you're a federal, a sovereign nation or you're a, a, when you have to have Indian Health Service controlled by another government who decides how much funding you get or not? Don't tell me who I am. You go worry about who the U.S. government told you you were. So part of it is so this all this shit started because there's a native journalist, and I use the word journalist loosely, up in Portland, who I think has her own trauma, right? There's so much trauma. I mean, in native communities, there's another convergence with black communities, I think, around identity and, you know, one drop rules on the one hand for black folks. So it's like, well, you ain't really black or you are black or maybe the, then there's the Indian. It's like, well, you ain't never got enough or something like that kind of type thing. It's almost like an opposite dichotomy that we wanted black people to exist more so, so we could disenfranchise them. So no matter how little black they had, that means you could disenfranchise them. Indians, we wanted to disappear completely. So there wouldn't be any, so we could also disenfranchise them. And so this reporter, I don't get, yes, there's an issue with fraud um, of people who are not native people um, pretending or like you have the, What's her name? Jess La Bombera, who made up that she was an Afro-Latina, right? Who are intentionally doing these things. Rachel Dolezal. That is very different from a person who has done good work. Even I'll say Andrea Smith, who people are mad at, right? That was a big issue. Who were told growing up that this is who they were, right? That's not identity. Now, where she messed up, and she should have once the Cherokee Nation told her to stop identifying, then you listen. I think at the end of the up to the tribes to decide who their members are and who they aren't. So this is why I had a problem with this journalist who is from two nations. Uh, she's Sue and Dene. I don't even know if she's enrolled in either, which is ironic to me that she's making that kind of like the status bar. Um, but she created a list and I had heard about it from a couple people. I wasn't, I wasn't listening. She and I were friends. She even interviewed me at one point or acquaintances, I should say, not friends, but, um, and she has created a, what she calls an alleged pretend Indian list of about 180 people, very well-known scholars, actors, you name it. But some of the people are dead. Some of them are adopted, adopted out of the tribes. Not all of them even claim to be necessarily Native. Some of them are federally. I was like, what kind of shit is this? Who does this nasty stuff like that? That's so important to you. That in the middle of a damn global pandemic that is disproportionately impacting Native people, that this is how you want to spend your time? Meanwhile, I'm over here creating and listening to elders, creating a COVID response page, getting out thousands of masks and PPE to tribes, but you over here worrying about who's a real Indian and who's not because, you know, whatever your trauma is, deal with your own trauma because that's not the way to do it. Then at the end of the day, I feel like she has to follow the cultural protocol that means you need to talk to the tribes first. Do they even ask you to look into all these people? 
You're not a member of all these different tribes. Who the hell do you think you are to tell somebody else who their ancestors are or what kind of paperwork documentation? So she got pissed because I called her out. Never actually had mentioned her name. I just said, I heard about this list. Some people had told me that it was attacking black Indians specifically. It wasn't, but there are a few black Indian folks on there. And so I spoke out about it, and then somebody screenshot my stuff, sent it to her, because I blocked her because she did some salty stuff last year, so we had stopped talking. And so I just don't like her politics. You know, you can tell what kind of person she is, though, from the beginning. You look at her Facebook page, and it says, if you fly straight, you'll have nothing to worry about for me. Well, who the hell do you think you are if I fly, if people fly? Like, that's just, as an introductory message, what that tells is, as long as you do what I say or do as I want, how colonial does that sound to you, right? And so the way in which she attacked me then was like, well, we're going to dig into your ancestry and her little followers who are mostly white passing people. He ain't a real Indian. His tribe is fake because they're not federally enrolled. I produced a letter from my tribe that says I'm enrolled. I pulled out a DNA thing just even though we don't believe in the DNA. It's about culture. Um the records, they couldn't find the records. That's why I was telling you earlier. We know why the records aren't going to show what they're, they're looking for, right? Um, but they don't even know. This is where the anti-blackness is so deep. They don't even know that they're being anti-black because they just say, well, just because he's black doesn't mean we're being anti-black. If he's fake, he's fake. So, you know, but do you know the history of my state? You have the audacity or my region or my tribe to think you know everything, you don't know that anti-blackness is why you won't see the records you're looking for, per se. Although there are some records, and I produce those too. So it was just kind of funny. I was like, you attack people because that's right. If you don't fly straight, right, metaphor, pun, in to take well taken for a clear man to hear flying to see some shit like that. But you know, it, at the end of the day, I was like, let me let this go, because I was starting to get messages from everybody. Because people weren't wanting to speak out on it. And I was I don't mind speaking out on it. I'm in a place when I can. But this is damaging people's careers and their lives. And at the end of the day, it's like she's saying, well, people are doing this to make a living off of being a professional Indian. And I'm like, really? Who the hell is getting rich off saying they're an Indian? Like, seriously, for real. I don't think so. In fact, if anybody's trying to make money off being an Indian, it's her. You know, because she's over here trying to sell her book. Because when I first made the first post, all she said was, well, I guess he doesn't, because I didn't say anything about her book. But she kept going on about, I don't even know what, I mean, I guess he does, because I said, you should be doing something more important than this. Your work is, this is not good work to do something like creating a list in the middle of COVID. So she's like, I guess he doesn't value my book very much. Or I'm like, I don't even know you wrote a book. Who gives a shit? And then, and then your book, and then her book is about, a tribe she's not a member of. So you over here making money off them? Did you ask permission of the folks at Standing Rock to write a book about them? Well, don't even, don't even get started. You got the right one. You don't, whatever. She can kiss. Never mind. Yes, I feel you. I also want to just recognize that, you know, from the beginning to the end of you telling your story, you see clearly the white supremacy in mm -hmm. all of it. When you said federally recognized tribe, I was like, what? <laughs> We're pretending our whole tribe is pretending, but okay. Well then I can say the same thing about you. But can I, I want to know because what, what's interesting to me about everything that you said is it sounds to me, and I don't know who this person is. So I, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not in the community. Uh, so you know, whatever to this person, but I never said their name until they started copying my stuff and think that that's okay to do. That's the kind of quote journalism that she calls herself doing, you know, but I'm wondering though, uh, like, does she not know the social history of indigenous people in the Americas? Because the way you describe things, it doesn't feel like she knows well, or she one, doesn't understand. Doesn't, And it's only one narrative that matters to her, I think. Right. And I don't think she fully understands that even using her own narrative may mean that she's not really an Indian herself, if that's the case, right? If you're only going to base it on, you know, okay, I guess if she's basing it on written records, but if you're not a part of a, you're not, an, I know that she's not enrolled in one of her tribes. 
Mm. Um, she, you know, and so it's like, well, do you get to claim that tribe then? Mm. And you're telling people like beyond within the confines of what you're saying. I don't know. It's just very messy. I think you run the risk. It's a dangerous game than what she's playing. I think like I saw yesterday on her Twitter by chance, cause I was looking for something else. And I was like, you did what? She wrote to the Dean of a university in Kansas about three people that are on her list saying we investigated them. They're white. They're not really Indians. We want to have a conversation and how they didn't respond. Who do you think you are? Like, this is where you're going to get sued, right? Because number one, universities, it's illegal for them to hire you based on your race. Yes. To even say to a university that they did that or make that claim is whatever. Yes, there's issues of fraud and universities do need to address them. But let's be real. How often does this actually occur? The bigger issue to me is if you have a problem with that, and particularly it's mostly white passing or white people they're complaining about, well, how come you ain't taking up about the issue of trying to get more Indian people in the education system so they can have those positions? But no, you want to focus on, because in other words, you don't care about the white people who say they're white, who are 90% of the people writing about Indians. But then you have a problem with the people who may or may not be actually Indian, but you want, so you want to spend all your time worrying about whether they are or not, but you don't give a shit about the ones who is who clearly tell you they're not Indian. The head of the academic organization, which he's cool. This is not to begrudge him. This is just a question. He's a queer white man who studies Native studies. He does good work. But he was the president of the National Association of uh, Native American Indigenous Studies Association. But y'all ain't worried about that, right? You don't mind that you're going to, it's okay to have a white person run this organization but then you're going to be mad at like, and then on top of it, you don't get that coming for a black person who also is native. You <laughs> damn nerve, right? Because I'm not passing nowhere. You over here more privileged than me. Right. So let's not, and I don't want to do the oppression Olympics thing. You know, I'm just saying, let's be real about the shit too. Um, and so, yes, it is, it is very, tied to a white supremacist kind of ideology, I think, and they have bought in completely to written records. Like, come on, your tribe had some damn written records in 1300, that's what you're telling me? And that's how they were keeping track of who was, you know, who, and they all lived in the same place they live in now? No, they moved too. You want to talk about displacement? How about all the people that other that tribes are displacing? Also, right, so we talk about, just like people saying black people are settlers. The fuck we are. I'm like, you know what? With that case, all these tribes that have displaced other tribes are fucking settlers too. Okay, so- can we talk about it? Can we talk about that? Yeah. Because that is one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the anti-black things that I experienced from a uh, quote, a quote, unquote, Chicana, Chicano, mm. Mm-hmm. indigenous person i don't know how to say that i don't even know what that is it's a hard thing because this is the problem with borders right is that if we identify and accept and agree with borders then we make possible all these kind of erasures or assumptions we don't dig deeper i'm always about we got to get underneath this and dig a little bit deeper too many people are accepting what the colonial governments have told us is truth right even between Canada, why do you think there's all these border tribes? Uh, you know, mm. you have both tribes on both sides of Canada and the U.S. or in Arizona or the mm. Southwest or these tribes that are cut off from each other. But they're not real because they're from Mexico. What? You know, so it's a very interesting thing. Yeah. Or that black people have, somehow are displacing Native people. Don't you have, a cho- have to have a choice, first of all, to be able to come... And it's not about settlement when you don't have, can't own land. Like, let's have some deeper analysis here. Then, oh my settlers, God. they're arrivants. Like, we didn't just fucking arrive here. Like, no, somebody stole us. And imported us here. Right? And then some of the tribes themselves, who which were very much infiltrated by white people, right, at the head of some of these tribes, you go back and look at some of the chiefs early on of those five civilized at least, 
a lot of white stuff going on. That's why they had slaves. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how are you going to sit up here and you're going to say, we're settlers? You had slaves. Give me some. Right? I think black people didn't have slaves, too. I mean, they did. They Creoles did. They did. Creoles had slaves and participate. I think we can talk about folks participating in a settle, settler kind of society and what that looks like or means. But I think it's very problematic to call Latinos or Chicanos settlers. They're indigenous people who the borders moved around them. Like, how are you going to call them a damn settler? I, I just, and I think it's a limited analysis. Just like I was saying earlier, I don't like the term settler anymore. I think yes. It's I know it's talking about a system, but you know what? Fuck your theory. Woo. Fuck your theory that you guys think is like, you know, and then people are like, well, we can't. I don't, I'm like, y'all get too heady with some of the theory stuff. And it's like, what's the real fucking shit out on the street? I say. Like, the reality of what black and brown people are doing. And are they sitting up here talking about settlers? Like, go to Oakland or even here in Sandy. Like, where are black people displacing indigenous people? Hello. 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 Where are, where are indigenous people displacing black people? I think this is part of the problem that we um you know that get, that gets fixated on and then we this is where we need to talk about what are the relational realities what are the ways in which black and indigenous peoples have been working or i should say black and native american because black people are indigenous black and native american people have uh, and other groups too have been working together all this time mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. that this false today about you know trying to create this sort of anti-asian anti-black kind of beef again and how that really is ignoring, you know, this history. So, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, just talking about like the freedmen or slavery among tribes or Buffalo soldiers who killed native people. We don't want to get stuck on that stuff, deal with it and talk about it. At the same time, we also need to talk about the fact that these communities were always also already working together. Like New Orleans and think of Congo Square as a gathering place where black indigenous and Europeans who were poor and indentured came together to fight against colonization. So this right, that communities have always been fighting. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we need to be doing. That's why I was upset about a list or trying to police somebody's identity or, or you can say you're not policing it. You're trying to define it for them. You get to do that. You need to follow cultural protocol. Let their communities define who they are, not you. And they don't, people get mad because I say, well, the U.S. government decided to give you an enrollment card. No, they did it. My tribe did. But who gave your tribe the status to even say that? And if they can take it from you, if they can take it away from you, because they've done it, terminated other tribes, who's to say they won't terminate your shit? So then, so then you're not an Indian. You know what I mean? It's so the same it. as the citizenship for undocumented people or people who come over, you know, Ooh. who are not born here, right? They can get their papers taken like my wife. We right. She can't do much because even though she, quote unquote, has her citizenship, mm-hmm. she could get that taken away at any time. You know right. what I'm saying? And so it's interesting to hear um, the commonalities of oppression within this. And I'm not going to get stuck here uh, because I also know that we're running out of time. So I just have one sort of comment question. I don't know how it's going to come out. But I think after having this conversation with you, I I've, I have a fear, honestly. <laughs> I just got scared because um, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing like, you know, a lot of quote unquote people who are down, right? Who are like, you know, this is the land of the indigenous people. We need to ask our elders about these. I think that's true. But now I'm a, I have a fear that 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 might not be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm like thinking about, you know, there's there's people, there's indigenous folks like you, right? Who are obviously well aware of their culture, the cultures of other indigenous communities, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have people like this person who made the list. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so how can a person uh, distinguish when they're like, we got to ask these elders, and I'm t- thinking about the whole of the the U.S. specifically, but we can also look at the all of Americas. How do you know which one you getting? 
You know what I'm saying? Because if we follow the one that's that's in Portland, we gonna be perpetuating some white supremacist shit. You know what I mean? Well, I think yeah. No, no, it's a good question. I think as a lot of people say, not el- not every elder is a good elder. That's every community, right? Or just because someone is old doesn't mean they're an elder, right? Older doesn't mean elder. Elder is about a knowledge keeper, about a person who, you know, um, holds a particular role and position to share with other people. I think when you know, I think most of us can see what humility looks like, what honor looks like, what kindness looks like, what wisdom um, looks like. And so when you see someone that's doing the things this person has been doing, that's why so many people stop even paying attention. They're like, this is trauma. This is actually a soul wound. And that's what that person has is a soul wound. They're struggling in terms of who they are and they, they have their own disconnect. And I don't think people should listen. You are right that some people are going to listen, but people hear what they want to hear. We have to remember that, right? And so it's just like when we say, oh, what about the idea of kinship? Family's not always good, you know? There is choice, though, when we talk about kinship. And so I think when we choose those who we want to listen to, just like anything else, I think we have to balance and weigh, like, does this speak to my heart? Does this speak to my spirit? Does this speak to my values and my commitments? And if it doesn't, then you you just keep moving on. But I'm not here to, you know, I'm here to help people, not hurt people. And I think at the end of the day, you have to weigh and measure. Like some people could say, yes. Indian fraud is a huge issue. And at the same time, it's creating a list of 180 people and circulating it to anybody who asked and then emailing people's employers about it because you found on Ancestry.com that the records didn't match what you think it should say. Like that to me at the end of the day, the the trauma or pain or that that causes, like, I don't know, what is the end goal with that, right? If I were just to step away, Right. And nothing about this, I would say, well, what is the end goal of this? What's the purpose of this? You okay, you wrote that admin. What if they even fire mm-hmm. those people? Is anyone gonna replace those people that are native? No. And even, and were they doing good work even if they were flawed right. people? So is anyone gonna do the work that they did if they fired them? Just just playing devil's advocate, right? If if that were their end goal, right? Yeah. For yeah. me, it's more yeah. like how use that time to go into community, encourage young Native women as a Native woman yourself to, you know, do work in their community, learn their language. If you think they are, you know, you're a journalist to become journalist, you know, like it just seems like this person picks all hot button issues, Mm. whether it's mascots or Standing Rock or identity stuff to get attention. Mm -hmm. This is not about attention. This is about our lives, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. for me I speak because you know I'm not just speaking for me and that means I have a responsibility to the stories and the you know histories that I carry not you know in my body Mm -hmm. right yeah literally and in my spirit but also to all the people that like the the students or you know other people who can't speak Mm -hmm. um, these things sometimes that that's a responsibility and I think people need to that's what we need to watch for, you know, mm-hmm. is how people walk in the world and what are their commitments. And, you know, like I said, during this whole incident, I was like, you know what, let the work I've done speak for me. Um, that's all I can do at the end of the day. You know, mm-hmm. we all go somewhere else and like, what do you want to be remember people to remember about you or to feel that you did or not even remember about you, but about what you've left mm-hmm. that- your legacy. That can help, that will help to, and not just, not your personal, right? Because that's individualistic. What is there for other people that will continue to make it better for more people in the future? Not so that people can celebrate you as a person per se, but that they can benefit from your contributions and and thrive. Yeah, Yeah, I get that. Oh my God, this was, I wish I could start my Sundays always like this. This was dope, Andrew. Um, oh my gosh. I, I, I would love to keep talking to you, but I know we have to go. 
Um, so I'm just going to say I, I really appreciate this conversation. Um, it's an important conversation that we need to have, um, especially in the midst of what's happening now. Um, I, I just want to reiterate this concept of kinship and family versus allies and co-conspirators, um, because I think that's something that we need now. I think, you know, when you mentioned soul wound, um, I can't help it. Like, what's the healing of, of how do you heal your soul wound? And that's legit having love and support, unconditional love, because I don't think a lot of people understand unconditional love and support. Um, and so I just, I appreciate your wisdom. Um, I appreciate your vulnerability and, and allowing us to see you um, and, um, and hear you. Um, so I just want to thank you for coming on the show. And do you have any last words for us? Just to, to, to remember when I said hello to you all, I said, Yatol means in the Ishak language that we're all connected, we're all relatives. And so that, you know, in hearing something today that I've said and, and that you listening, even though I will not maybe know all the people who will listen to this or see this, that there's a connection there. And that when you, we make connections that we carry those things forward. And we, and, and so I hope, I, I wish good medicine to all of you listening. I hope you realize that the way that we heal those soul wounds is that we understand um, something I talked about is radical love and that Indian blood, which you mentioned that radical love is about realizing that we are each other's medicine and that we are our, each other's healing. And that happens when we don't do things to hurt each other, right? Don't do things to, is it that hard? Like to me, I've never mm. understood even when I was a kid, why would we not just be kind? Like sometimes people don't understand me, even in dating, I feel like they're like, why are you so nice? You know, or not nice. And I hate using the word as nice too sometimes, or it's just like, no one ever did such and such for me. Or student will come back and say, no one ever told me I was sacred before you mm. told me that. It's that this idea, like, why, is there something wrong with being like kind and generous and giving to people? And I think that is hard when so much of our spirits have been robbed that we have nothing to give. So that's just to be real too. I understand and recognize and honor that. So I'm not saying everybody has the space in which or capacity to feel like, you know, I don't want to smile because I have nothing to smile about. Like, that's real. And if you do have plenty to smile about, hey, which is a lot of us, smile and and, 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 and be medicine. So thank you so much. Okay. All right. That's it for us. Take care. Deuces. Yeah. Daddy,